Chapter Six, Parts A and B of Aces Up. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aces Up, by Covington Clark. Chapter Six, Parts A and B. The Squadron Takes Wing. Part A. Only a war pilot can visualize the confusion and excitement incident to moving a squadron base up to the front. There is work enough for all, even when such a move is foreseen and planned for days in advance. But when a moving order comes down in the dead of night, as is so frequently the case, then rank is forgotten. Pilots, commanders, supply and operations officers, air mechanics, flight leaders, in fact everyone from the CO down to the lowliest greaseball pitches in with a gusto sufficient to produce a miracle. For it is little short of the miraculous to carry out an order received at midnight calling for a movement at dawn. In fact, one inexperienced in army ways would declare that it couldn't be done. But great headquarters considers only what must be done, issues orders accordingly, and such is the magic of the discipline and proper spirit that, lo, the thing is done. The impossible becomes possible, and the ordinary. And so it was with Major Cowan's squadron. The hour they had so long awaited had come at last. So great was their zeal that with the first hint of dawn in the east, the planes were all on the field, properly outfitted, finally checked, and ready to go. Even the planes seemed to be huddled together, poised like vibrant butterflies, eager to take wing. McGee and Larkin well knew, from experience, the varied conflicting emotions felt by the members of the squadron. Standing near the barren spot where the large hangar tent had been, they watched the various members making their last-minute preparations. Occasionally, they gathered in groups, all talking at once, and in hurriedly passing one another, they would slap each other on the back with a force greater than needed in friendly greeting. It was the fevered reaction of nerves. They had waited for this hour, yes, and at last they were going up to the front. But every man of them knew that some of them would never come back. There was a grim gateman up there where the guns roared, waiting to take his toll. They think they are going right in, Larkin said to Red, as he watched a pilot by the name of Carpenter make the last of at least a dozen inspections of his two machine guns. We have the foggiest notion where we are going but I'll wager we won't see action for several days. I think you are wrong there, McGee replied. There's a tremendous push up on the Marne. My guess would be that we will go somewhere in the neighborhood of Epernay, probably to take over a sector patrolled by French squadron so that they can be used on the more active front around Chateau Thierry or up around Reims. Hello, there goes the siren and here comes the major. We will know soon enough now. I'll wager you a dinner. It's another soft spot. No action, Larkin said. Done. You are through with soft spots now. Major Cowan's quick walk spoke volumes. The pilots shouted derisively at the sound of the siren, a distressingly noisy contrivance designed to arouse sleepy pilots and turn them out for dawn patrol. Fall in, fall in, Mullins began shouting. You act like a bunch of sheep. Line up there. The roll-call of officers, Cowan ordered. A staff sergeant, who had kept his wits sufficiently to rescue the roll from another headquarters non-com, 
who was packing everything in one of the trucks, came hurrying forward with the roll. The names were droned off. The here that responded to each name was a full commentary on the mental attitude of the respondent. Yancey, for instance, fairly shouted his, while Rod hesitated, seeming to search for an even smaller word. Carpenter's here was little more than a whisper, as might come from one who was making an admission which he wished circumstances had ordered otherwise, and the rotund little McWilliams answered in a manner that convinced McGee that Mac was really wishing he were not here. McGee and Larkin, not yet carried on the roll, stood to one side, conscious of the fact that they were still wearing uniforms of the Royal Flying Corps. They felt like two lost sheep. Look at their faces, Red whispered to Larkin. Faces tell a lot. They're keen to go, all right. But take Carpenter and McWilliams, for instance, scared stiff. They're expecting to meet an entire Hun circus between here and and wherever we are going. The roll call ended. Gentlemen, Major Cowan began, his voice crisp and businesslike, we have been ordered up to La Ferte sous Joire, due southwest of the Chateau Thierry salient. The exclamation of surprise forced him to pause. McGee gave Larkin a dig in the ribs. I win, he said. That's no soft spot. But Major Cowan continued. For some reason, Brigade has seen fit to divide the journey into two parts, possibly to permit our trucks to reach there ahead of us, but more probably because it lacks faith in our ability to make the change without scattering our ships all along the line of flight. For my part, I have no such fear. I think I know the ability of this pursuit group. He hesitated to let this sink in. And it was well that he did. Yancey gasped and began coughing to cover it up. Hank Porter stepped on Hamden's boot with great force. Hamden, in turn, nudged Siddons, who alone of all the group displayed no emotion. Never before had these men heard Cowan indulge in compliment. Something had come over him. His mustache actually looked a little more like a man's mustache. In fact, Yancey thought, the blasted thing was almost military. However, Cowan continued, we will fly to a field just south of Epernay today. Tomorrow morning we will take off and continue a course, almost parallel with the present lines, to La Ferte sous Jouard. Our destination has been kept confidential until this moment. From necessity, of course, I have gone over the maps and our course with the flight leaders, and they know the way. In case one of them should be forced down, that flight will double up with one of the others. You have little to worry about. Keep your head and remember where you are going. If forced down, proceed to La Ferte sous Jouard on the Paris-Metz road at the earliest moment. But, he added slowly, as I said before, I expect to see us arrive there together and in order. That is all, gentlemen. Yonder comes the sun. To your ships now, and look sharp as you take off. Remember, this is no joyride. Hold your positions. The pilots broke into a run for their ships, slapping one another on the shoulder as they ran. Luck, old warhorse. Same to you, big feller. Hey, Yancey, if you're leading B-flight, give her the gun and hightail it. The war's waiting. So long, Hank. Luck, feller. Get a waddle on, Mac. The war's looking up, eh? I hope to spit in your mess kit. Laughing, bantering, shouting, they climbed into their planes. The helpers stood at the wings, ready to take out the chocks when the motors had warmed. 
The mechanics took their places at the props. How envious they were! The little wasps that they had so carefully groomed were going forward to the battle zone, and every mechanic offered up prayer that his ship would function perfectly and make good the hope which Cowan had expressed. A prop went over. Whoosh! The first motor caught and roared. Another. Another. Bedlam now. No longer any shouting, only a waving of hands, a few last-minute adjustments as the motors warmed and sent a mighty dust-cloud whirling back to obliterate the spot where the hangar had stood. Straight ahead, a fiery red ball rose over a slate-covered hedge. A long flight of ravens crossed directly before the rising sun. Ha! Clumsy fellows, and slow. Better come over and take some lessons from some real birds. Cowan's plane moved forward slowly, roared into life, and fairly sprang into the fiery eye of the sun. Numbers two and three followed, skimming the new drenched grass like swallows over a lake. Then four and five. By George, this was something like. This was worth waiting for. The falconer of war had unhooded his new brood of hawks, and they mounted up, free of bells and jessies. Part B the flight to the aerodrome, some six kilometers south of Epernay, was made without incident. That is, it was thought to be without incident, until Yancey, leading B flight, reported to Cowan that Siddons had been forced down by some trouble over Vitry. Cowan was evidently displeased. He had hoped for a perfect score. What was the matter? he demanded, the ends of his mustache twitching nervously. I don't know, sir. He kept dropping back. I swung alongside, but I couldn't savvy his signals. He kept pointing back at his tail. I couldn't see anything wrong. But there's a big drum at Vitry, and he signaled me that he was going down. I hung around to watch his landing, and then hustled back to my flight. Fuel up. Fly back there and see what's going wrong, Cowan ordered. I have a sneaky suspicion that he wasn't as bad off as he made out. As Yancey turned toward his ship, McGee came up, smiling with pleasure over the success of the flight. Just a minute, Yancey, Cowan called. I've changed my mind. You needn't go back. He drew McGee to one side. Do you remember passing over the French drome outside of Vitry? he asked. Yes, sir. Your plane is in good order? Yes, sir. Good. Yancey tells me that Siddons was forced down there. I want you to refuel. Go back there and see what the trouble was. I have my own ideas. Yes, McGee queried. That fellow hates formation flying like the devil hates holy water, Cowan answered. He's a joyrider. He knows how anxious I am to effect this move without a hitch, and he also knows there'll be no passes into Epernay tonight. I have a hunch Vitry looked good to him. I want you to find out. I'm sending you, Cowan explained, smiling faintly because it doesn't make much difference if you get lost, since you are merely also along, and also because I don't expect you to get lost. Report to me upon your return. Yes, sir. End of 6A and B